are tuning in to Growpoint Duma Daily Podcast, where it's all about relationships. We exist to glorify God by making disciples in the spirit of love. We hope that this message will bless your heart. Well, good morning, church. Glad to have you here today. If you're visiting with us today at Grow Point Dumaguete, I just want to say welcome, and I'm glad that you're here today. Um, I'm with you today. I'm visiting as well, so I thank you for that clap, all right? But we're glad that you're here. And uh, I don't know if you're here because you want to be here or you have to be here, but it doesn't matter that you're here. And what is, what is fun about coming to church is that we're going to open God's Word here in just a moment, and we're going to listen to the God of heaven speak to our hearts. There's a God who who made us, a God who knows us, and a God who desperately loves us, and a God who desires us to have an intimate walk and relationship with Him. If you're here this morning and you don't have that walk with Him, I trust today would be that day where you come into fellowship with a wonderful and a mighty God who can wash away our sins, giving us an abundant life now and an eternal life with Him in the future. Turn your Bibles, if you would, with me this morning to the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 12 today, 2 Samuel chapter 12. We're going to look at a very familiar story, the story of David and his sin with Bathsheba. But I, I want to take it just a little bit different direction and ask the question, why did David go down this destructive path? Our text today is 2 Samuel chapter 12. I heard a story one day of, a, of an employer that was walking through uh, his office building and he overheard one of his employees say this, this employee said, if I had 10,000 pesos, then I would be truly a contented person. Well, the employer heard that. He stopped. He went back to this employee and he said, I heard what you said, and I want to give you 10,000 pesos because I have never met a truly contented person. So he reached into his pocket. He pulled out 1,000 uh, pesos and counted them out, and there handed to that employee 10,000 pesos. He said, here you go. Here's 10,000 pesos. Now you can be a truly contented person. And he turned and walked away. And as he was walking away, he overheard this employee say this to another employee, man, I should have asked for 20,000 pesos. <laughs> I'm not sure that brings contentment. But you know, all of us, without a doubt, we are all susceptible to this fast spreading cancer of the soul, a desire for more. And you know, everybody in one way or another, desires more. All of us, some way, somehow, we have all been, we have been impacted with this desire for more. I have, uh, I, especially when I go to all-you-can-eat buffets. You know what I'm talking about? A desire for more at all-you-can-eat buffets. Remember several years ago in Singapore, this all-you-can-eat Japanese restaurant opened. And it was all-you-can-eat. And from the very moment the doors were open, I mean, there were lines that were so long, it seemed that they wrapped around the shopping mall. Sometimes the wait was about an hour long, but it was always worth it. Because once you got into this all-you-can-eat buffet, you paid a very a nominal fee, and then the gorging could begin. And my rule at all-you-can-eat buffets is you don't eat until you're full. You eat until you're tired. And I have, a, I have a technique. I call it the sky-high technique at all-you-can-eat buffets. I go to the buffet table with the biggest plate I can find, and I stack the food as high as I can stack it, and I use carrot sticks to make a retaining wall around the edge of the plate so nothing falls off. And after I devour that plate, I do what you do. You go back and you get another plate, and then another plate, another plate. And so finally, after about an hour, I slip down on my, my chair, holding my now slightly 
enlarged tummy. I feel like a beached whale. And I say, man, I could not eat another bite. And just as I'm saying, I cannot eat another bite. I'm reaching up and grabbing another tempura prawn, grabbing another piece of sliced fish or grabbing another plate of food. Because you know what? All you can eat buffets, enough is never enough. And you know, enough is never enough seems to be, as it were, the mantra of our day. Because the desire for more has affected everybody, and it's affected all of us in some way or another, and it's affected us in different ways. We all want just a little bit more. We all want a, a little bigger salary. We want a new house, a larger house, or maybe we even want a house. You know, we want a car, then we want a new car. We want greater thrills, longer vacations. Some men want younger wives. Some want smarter kids. Some want more gadgets, more influence, more control, more power. We all just want a little more. A few years ago, the multi-billionaire Howard Hughes was asked the question, how much is enough? And he said this, just a little bit more. And that seems to be the cry of the day. But you know, this desire for more that grips the heart of so many people has caused, sadly, so many people great hurt and heartache. In fact, it has sometimes absolutely ruined homes. This discontentment of the soul has driven a person to buy something that they cannot afford. Or this desire for more has caused a person to love a woman that's not his wife or pushed their children beyond their ability or caused them to take a job that is not God's will for their life. And I don't know where you are today in this subject or even in your walk in relationship with God, but maybe today you struggle with discontentment. Maybe you're not quite satisfied with who you are, what you have, or where you are in life. Maybe this desire for more has already caused you and your family great hurt and great heartache. And so maybe you're asking yourself this question, how can I be truly satisfied? How can I find contentment? Or maybe you're asking the question this way, is it actually possible to be contented and satisfied today? And the answer to that question is absolutely yes. And that is what our passage here in 2 Samuel chapter 12 is all about. In this passage, we meet a man by the name of David. Remember David? David was a great leader. He was a superb general and he was a revered king. But David fell prey to this desire for more and it almost ruined his life. And from his example, I want us to see when enough is enough. I want us to see how we can all be satisfied and absolutely contented in life. So let's pick up this story beginning in 2 Samuel chapter 11. So let's go back to chapter 11, and we're going to work our way up to chapter 12, verse by verse. It'll take us just a couple hours here this morning, and then we'll be done. Of course, I'm just kidding, all right? But here we go in 2 Samuel chapter 11, and let's read verse 1. Listen to what it says. It said, it happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabah, but notice it says, but David remained in Jerusalem. Now, why David was in Jerusalem when his soldiers were on battle, I do not know. Because David was the chief and commander of the nation of Israel. He should have been with his troops. So why was he in Jerusalem and why was he not with his men on the battlefield? Well, the answer is we, we don't know. Maybe David was bored with success. Maybe David was tired of fighting. Maybe David was having the Old Testament equivalent of a, of a midlife crisis. Maybe David wasn't happy 
with who he was or where he was or what he had in life. But the point is, David is not where he should have been. But whatever the reason, it was on a balmy spring evening that David went to the roof of his house, and there he began to look over all that God had given to him. There, to a surprise, he saw something that God did not give him. He saw a woman on the, her rooftop bathing. And why this woman was on the rooftop bathing, we do not know. But the Bible says, as we see in verse 2, that he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. And so David, rather than, you know, turning and fleeing the lust of his flesh, he followed his carnal desire and using his power and his position as a king of Israel, he said to one of his servants, he said, who is that girl next door? The servant responded to David and gave to David these words. We find him in verse three. The servant said, David, her name is Bathsheba and that she is the daughter of Eliam and she is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And you know, when David realized or when he heard that Bathsheba was the wife, the wife of Uriah, this should have stopped David dead in his tracks. You know what I mean? David, she is the wife of Uriah. That should have stopped David, but it didn't. Have you ever noticed that we're about to do something that God doesn't want us to do, whether we're about to make a decision or make a, you know, take a change and a course in life, that always God always gives us a warning? Have you ever, have you ever noticed that? You ever been tempted to sin? You're struggling with something in your life. You come to church and all of a sudden the preacher brings up the very thing that you're struggling with. You ever been reading the Bible and all of a sudden, bam, it jumps out with you. And all of a sudden God shows you a verse that that answers the question that you have in your mind. Or maybe you're talking with a friend and as you're talking with a friend, they bring up the very subject that you are dealing with. You know what that is? That is God. That is God coming to you. That's God's giving you a warning. It's God saying, listen, don't do what you're tempted to do. Don't make that decision. Well, that's exactly what God was doing with David. When this servant came and said to David, David, she is Bathsheba, and she is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. God was saying, David, she is not yours. Keep your hands off. David, flee. But David did what a lot of us do, although God gives us a warning. David spit to the wind. David, following his carnal desire, using his position as king of the nation of Israel, he invited this woman over to his house. And of course, we know the story. One thing led to another. And this one night stand resulted in a positive pregnancy test. And David found himself with a woman that was not his, pregnant with his child. And as you could well imagine, David was a bit shocked by this and a bit fearful. Because remember, Bathsheba's husband was Uriah. Uriah was a commander in David's army. And Uriah was not in Jerusalem. Uriah was where he was supposed to be. He was in another country fighting a battle. And all of a sudden, David knew that everybody was going to know that Bathsheba was pregnant and her husband wasn't there. And likely everybody saw Bathsheba night after night coming to the king's palace. And so David feared that every finger would point at him as the king of the nation of Israel. So David desired to cover up his sin. So what did he do? He invited Uriah back to spend some time with his wife to give him some R&R. But you see, one thing David did not understand is this man Uriah was a man of unusual character, and he would not go in and have relations with his wife. But as you remember reading the story, he slept outside her chamber at the foot of the, uh, of the door, and this put David into the horns of a dilemma. 
I mean, here is this man of unbelievable character slapping this king who should have character. David all of a sudden realized that he was in a very, very difficult way. So David desired to do the ultimate cover-up. So he wrote a letter to his chief and commander, a man by the name of Joab. And here's what David said in verse 15. David said, Joab set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. Wow, what tragic words. In other words, David was saying, hey, Joab, here's what I want you to do. I want you to kill Uriah, but I want you to make it look like it was just a, an act of battle, all right? So, you know, go and engage the enemy and send Uriah, you know, up front. And all of a sudden, when he's in the midst of the battle, have all of him and draw back. So everybody jumps on him and takes his life. Isn't it amazing when you read this? Isn't it amazing how one sin always leads to another sin? Isn't that funny how one sin always leads to another sin? Sin loves company, Right. It's true. You know, it's in interesting. Adultery always is accompanied by lying. Isn't that true? Think about it. There's always lying accompanied with it. Where were you tonight? Oh, I was somewhere. Were you with that person? No, I wasn't there. You know, adultery always leads to lying. It's funny how lust always gives birth to immorality, right? You toy with pornography, it's going to result in the act somewhere, somehow, in some way. Revenge always follows unforgiveness. And yet in David's case... His adultery resulted in murder. So David had this man, Uriah, murdered. But David would not get away with his sin. His cover-up would be uncovered. And I love this. God spoke to the heart of a man by the name of Nathan. Why? Because God loved David. God knew that David, if he was just a rot in the muck and the mire of his sin, that he would be set aside. and David would no longer become that sweet psalmist of Israel and that usable king that God so desired. So God did something for David. God brought into David's life a man by the name of Nathan. And by the way, let me just say this. When we find ourselves in the midst of sin and somebody comes and confronts us with sin, here's what you need to remember. God loves you. And God brought this person into your life to confront you with your sin so you might confess it and get right so God wouldn't have to come and be your judge. Are you with me? You either judge your own sin or you invite God to judge your sin. So God had to judge David's sin, but before God could judge David's sin, God sent Nathan in to confront him with his sin so David would confess that sin and he would get right with God. So that's exactly what happened. Nathan, Nathan the prophet. You know how I picture Nathan? You guys, do you remember John the Baptist, that wild-haired guy, you know, one handful of honey and bees eating it, camel hair coat, you know, probably as dusty as the day his long from walking down those dusty trails. That's how I picture this man, Nathan. I picture this old man. Here he comes hobbling into the king's court. He had a, had a coat of camel's hair. His hair was probably wild, probably never brushed, never combed, probably hadn't bathed in a long time. There he is with a hand upon a wooden staff because his knees were weak. And he comes hobbling into the king's, you know, corridor. And there he says, he sees this long hallway. And there he sees that pompous king, King David, this man who was hiding his sin, sitting upon his royal throne with his golden crown upon his head. And I can see him hobbling up to David, you know, and David, you know, greets him being an older man. And Nathan greets David. And Nathan comes to David and says, David, I have a concern. He says, I have a situation, and oh, you, you wise and mighty king, I need your advice. And David, you know, probably sits up thinking, 
you know, feeling a little proud of himself, straightens his crooked crown. He says, go ahead, old man, tell me your story. So Nathan begins to tell David his story. He says, oh, king. He says, there were two men, and one man was, an, was a very rich man, and he had all kinds of sheep, and yet his neighbor was a very poor man, and he had only one sheep. And then king, one day, the friend of the rich man came over to his house, and the rich man wanting to impress his friend said, hey, I'll tell you what, tonight, let's have some lamb chops for dinner. So he goes out back. And he hops the fence and he goes into his neighbor's yard and he takes his neighbor's one lamb and there he kills that lamb and he serves his friend the lamb chops that day. He says, King, what do you think about that story? And I can see David jumping off his royal throne, taking his crown, throwing it on the ground. And here's what David said. We find it. Second Samuel chapter 12 and verse five and six. Here's what David said to that story. He said, as the Lord lives, Nathan, he says, that man who has done this shall surely die. He shall and he shall restore, be restored fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and he had no pity upon this poor man. There I can see that old man, Nathan, straightened himself up upon his wooden staff. A smile comes upon his face and he takes his crooked finger and he points it to the face of the king. He says, David, he says, you are that man. And instantly his cover-up had been uncovered. And David was awakened out of his sleep of deception. And David, being a man of soft heart, the Bible says he fell upon his knees, and I'm sure a tear upon his cheek. And we read these words in verse 13. The Bible says, David said, Oh God, I have sinned against the Lord. And you know, this is truly a sad point in the life of this truly great man. And yet it brings me to a question that I want us to consider for the rest of our hours together this morning. I'm just kidding. All right. But I want us to consider this question. What led David down this destructive path? It's a good question. We all know the story, right? But what brought him to that point? Or let me ask you this way. What brings us to that point? Why do we go down our own destructive path? God warns us. He gives us caution we spit to the wind, we avoid the caution, and we go into sin, we come out wounded. What leads a person down that destructive path? What led David? Here's the answer. It was David's desire for more. What led him down this destructive path? It was his desire for more because humanly speaking, David had everything. I mean, David didn't have a single want in life. Remember who he was. He was the most powerful and influential man in the known world. David was a king, and he had a palace, and he had a city, and he had an entire army to protect the city and the palace and his royal throne. David had already many wives, okay? And he had lots of children, you know? What could David want? If you were to ask David, you know what David would say? God, I just wanted... A little bit more. You see, David wasn't satisfied with what God gave to him. And he wanted not what he had. He wanted what somebody else had. It was his desire for more that led him down this destructive path. In fact, God tells us that. God tells us that in verse 7 of 8 of 2 Samuel chapter 12. Listen to what God said. This is our main passage. The Bible says, thus says the Lord God of Israel. He says, David, 
I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives for your keeping. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if I had, if that had been too little, David, I would have given to you much more. Do you catch what God is saying? David, I have given you everything. What more could you want? David would say, but God, just a little bit more. Okay. It was his desire for more. It was this discontentment that had poisoned his soul and caused him to seek something that God didn't want him to have. It was his desire for more. David, I've given you everything. But David wanted a little bit more. He was poisoned by this desire to more, for more. And this dissatisfaction in David's heart, you realize, destroyed the life of Bathsheba. It destroyed her life. It took the life of her husband, and even the baby in the womb lost its life. It brought great hurt and heartache in the life of David and his family for years to come. Just go back and read the history of David's children. It was a tragedy. Tamar, Absalom, and hurt and heartache in the kingdom. This desire for more brought David down this destructive path. So here's a question. So what's the answer to this desire for more? What is the answer to our dissatisfaction in life? What's the antidote to this malady of more? Well, David gives us the answer. It's amazing. Several years later, the Spirit of God teaching David gave David these words found in Psalm 65 and verse 4. And here's what the scripture says. This is the answer to our discontentment. The Bible says in Psalm 65 and verse 4, it says, how blessed is the one whom you choose and bring near to you to dwell in your courts. He will be, and there's a word, he will be satisfied with the goodness of your house and with your holy name. Listen, do you know what the answer to our dissatisfaction is? Friends, it is you and I drawing near to God. Our answer is God. It is having an intimate, personal, loving relationship with a God that loves us. It is you and I drawing near to God. It is God that brings satisfaction. It is God that brings contentment. It is God that removes that desire for more and makes us desire our desire satisfied in Him. We're satisfied with God. You know, a person can have millions of dollars in the bank, hundreds of millions of pesos, but if they're not drawing near to God, you know, that money will not satisfy. A person can be the CEO of a Fortune 500 company with power and position, but if that person is not drawing near to God, that power, that position, all that influence will not satisfy. A person can be a leader in a church. They can have a growing ministry, but if they are not drawing near to God, that ministry and the fruit of that work will not satisfy. Why? What satisfies is you and I drawing near to God. Do you know a fame and fortune, praise and popularity, if the things of this life could satisfy the heart of man, then a man by the name of Simon Cowell would be without a doubt the most satisfied and contented man on the planet. Do you know his name, Simon Cowell? I mean, I think everybody on the planet knows his name. He gave us America, what? America's got, is that what is America's got talent, right? Or American Idol? Britain's Got Talent, X Factor. I mean, he's made many people household names. I mean, here's a man who was fame and fortune, praise and popularity. He today is a little bit older than me, all right? He's, I think he's 29 years old. I'm just kidding. He's in his mid-50s, all right? I think he might be 60 years of age now. But at 60 years of age, he has been recently 
uh, classified as the coolest man on the planet. When I read that, I was shocked because I always thought that was me. A rude awakening, but that's what they said. He always makes the rich list of Hollywood. He's worth over 500, billion, 500 million U.S. dollars. In fact, it is said that it took him five years to build his house in Hollywood, California. Five years because he wanted to get every single detail right. But here's a man who has fame and fortune, praise and popularity. Here's a man who, humanly speaking, has everything that the world says we need to be happy and to be satisfied and be content. And he's not happy. He's not satisfied. He's not content. In fact, here's what he recently said in an interview. And I quote, he said, I am quite odd in some ways. He says, I get very dark moods for no reason. He said, I feel like I'm just a wandering asteroid without a home. I get to point to my life where I sometimes think, am I ever going to be happy? Will I ever be satisfied? Will I ever see contentment in my life? Because you see, the things of this life, friends, they cannot satisfy. What people fail to realize is that contentment is not found in seeking possessions or pursuing our pleasures. You see, in fact, Jesus warned us that contentment and true satisfaction in life does not come through things. Did you know that? Jesus told us 2,000 years ago, listen, the things of this life can't fully satisfy your heart. Listen to what he said in Luke 12 and verse 15. Jesus put it this way. He says, one's life does not consist in the abundance of things that it possesses. In other words, Jesus is saying, listen, the things of life can't fully satisfy you. And you say, well, why can't the things of life satisfy my heart? Because they were not designed to satisfy you. You were designed by God to be satisfied by God alone. Did you know that? The things of life cannot fully satisfy the, the heart of man. That's why we have the world filled with people who have fame and fortune, praise and popularity. They have riches. They have power. They have position. And yet their life is a mess. They divorce, they remarry, they take drugs, they take alcohol, and when life gets to the worst, they take their own life. And we see that happening every single week, and it's all a reminder that, listen, the things of life can't fully satisfy the heart of man. What satisfies man? God does. You were made to be satisfied by God. In fact, the Bible tells us, and we know this, that we were made in God's image. Do you know that? You might think, well, what does it mean that we're made in the image of God? Well, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean you get up in the morning, look in the mirror and say, oh, that's what God looks like, huh? I got news for you. God does not look like you. The Bible says he's a spirit and all that worship him, worship him in spirit and truth. So what does it mean that we're made in God's image? It just simply means that we are made to know God. We are made to fellowship with God. That's what it means. We are made with the capacity to have a personal, intimate relationship with the God that made us. You were made in the image of God. In fact, did you know that we're not just a physical body? You know, I look over the congregation. You know what I see? I do not see the real you. I see your body. That party that's going to die. When the body dies, what happens? It becomes... Absolutely, it becomes dirt, man. It goes right back to the dust. Your body dies. The body's not the real you. The body was the real you. Then you die at death. The real you is what? The real you is a soul that hides within that body. See, I could be looking at you, you know, and you could be looking at me with your eyes, smiling, nodding, but your mind could be far away. You know what I'm talking about? Some of you right now are thinking about lunch. Shame on you. All right? But you see, the real you is a soul that hides within that body. That soul is the real you. It's a part of you that gives you your personality. It makes you you, and yet the soul is a part of you that enables you to know and fellowship with God. 
That's why the things of life cannot fully satisfy, because they satisfy the, the body. If I were to say to you, hey, let's go out and have a nice meal. We all go out and we have a nice meal and, and Pastor Ben pays for the meal. And everybody looks at him and says, oh, thank you. That was so nice. That's going to satisfy me for the rest of my life. I'm never going to have to eat again. I'm now totally content. True or false? False. You're going to get hungry when? About four hours later, you're going to be hungry again. All right, that's how life is. Life satisfies the the body. I mean, you buy a brand new car and you're so excited driving it around town until somebody comes and bangs your door. And all of a sudden, now you have that dent and now it has ruined your contentment because the things of life can't satisfy you. Because you see, it's not your body. You are a soul. And the reason that you are made in God's image and the reason you are made as a living soul is so that you can come into a relationship, an intimate relationship with the God that made you. Do you know the name C.S. Lewis? C.S. Lewis wrote a series of books, been made in the movies called the, the Chronicles of Narnia, right? You know those? Here's what he said. He was a, a lovely Christian man. C.S. Lewis said that God designed the human machine to run on himself. Perfectly said. God made you to be satisfied by him and by him alone. So that's why as Christians, we run around trying to be satisfied by this life and we come up empty. And then we ask the question, where is God in my life? The answer is that God is to be sought. We're to draw near and we're to seek him. And he brings us satisfaction. Our satisfaction in life is to be found in drawing near to God. You see, mountains of money will not satisfy. Success and praise of your peers will not satisfy. An extramarital relationship will not satisfy. A new home, a new car, a new wardrobe, a new spouse, a new boyfriend, a new girlfriend will not satisfy. In fact, do you know that simply being a Christian, listen carefully, simply being a Christian will not satisfy. Did you know that? In fact, some of the unhappiest and most dissatisfied people upon earth that I have ever met who have been Christians. Why? Because many Christians look at the Christian life like punching a spiritual time clock. You know what I mean? You have to punch a time clock when you go to work. I did for years. You know, I used to work in the hotel business. You walk in the back door, pull out your card, click, you know. When you walk out, click, all right. We look at the Christian life like that. We come to church and we punch our time clock. We come, we sit down, we pray a prayer, we sing a song, we hear a sermon, we give our tithe, we got, we punch our spiritual time clock, and we go back to our regular routine with no thought of God's claim upon our life. And then we wind up asking ourselves this question, where is God in my life? And we come up dissatisfied. Why? Because you see, our relationship with God is not like a job. It's not like a spiritual time clock. It's an intimate walk and relationship with a God who knows us, a God who loves us, and a God who desires an intimate personal relationship with us. It demands you and I drawing near. I love what David said. David put it this way in another psalm, Psalm 73 and verse 28. David said, but for me, the nearness of God is my good. Psalm 73 and verse 28, for me, the nearness of God is my good. In other words, drawing near to God is my satisfaction. Drawing near to God is where I find contentment. Drawing near to God is where I remove this desire for the things of this life, for this more, this more, this more that keeps me empty and empty and emptier. 
to the point where many Christians walk away from God because they say God's not real. And God says, wait a minute, I'm there. Seek me. Seek me. God says, seek me. That's the answer to our discontentment. Maybe today this desire for more has gripped your life. And as a result, you feel frustrated in your walk in relationship with God. Because you see, you want things that you cannot have. You desire things that you cannot afford. And this desire for more is eating cancerous hole in your soul. Maybe this desire for more has taken you on shopping sprees and has left you financially in debt. Maybe this desire for more has driven you into the arms of somebody who is not your spouse and you are in a dangerous position about ready to make David's mistake. Or maybe this desire for more is tempting you to take a job that is not God's will or to begin a relationship that is not God's desire for you and you know it, or maybe to make a decision that is not God's plan for your life. Maybe this desire for more has left you dissatisfied and you're willing and ready to walk out on your family or to leave your job or even to abandon your ministry. Or maybe this desire for more has just left you empty on the inside. as left you wondering, where's God in my life? But you see, the answer to our dissatisfaction is you and I drawing near to God. And that begins this way for every one of us. It begins this way. Drawing near begins by you and I allowing Jesus to have first place in every area of our life. Here are some familiar words. These are the words of Jesus. He said this in Matthew 6 and verse 33. We know this. Seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first. Jesus first. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all of these things shall be added to you. You see what he's saying? God says, seek me and I will satisfy your soul. Seek me and I'll give you the contentment that you're looking for. Seek me and this desire for more will not burn a hole in your soul, tempting you to a tragic end. Seek me, that's where it begins. And so for maybe for some of you this morning, the first step in drawing near means maybe you need to rebuild that, that broken and struggling relationship. Or maybe for you, it's tearing up that job resignation or committing to rebuild your marriage. Or maybe it simply means, and this is true for all of us, maybe it means just listening to God as he speaks to us from his word. Or talking to God through prayer. And for all of us, it means coming to God in faith and obeying his word in every area of our life. You see, the secret to discontentment is simply drawing near to God. The God who made you, a God who loves you, and a God who desires a relationship with you. And that does not matter whether you're a child of God. You say, but I'm a Christian today. But let me ask you, are you content? Are you satisfied? Is there a desire for more eating at your soul that's tempting you to make a wrong decision, to make a wrong turn, to go down a wrong path? The answer it's God. And maybe for you, it's coming back to God. Or maybe for you, it's kicking up your spiritual life. Maybe for you, it's recommitting yourself to your walk in relationship with him. Maybe for some of you today, you don't have a relationship with God. You know about him, but there, you haven't come to that point in your life where you realize that you're separated from God because of your sin. That's why there's that emptiness in your heart. You see, you're made by God to know God, but sin has separated you from a holy God. And God says, you got to deal with your sin. But you can't wash away your own sin. And you know that. That's why Jesus Christ came. 
You see, he came to do for you and me what we cannot do for ourselves. Jesus Christ came and he died for our sin. And the Bible says it's the blood of Jesus Christ, God's son, that can cleanse us from all of our sin. And so if you're going to be cleansed from your sin so you can have a relationship with God now and you have a relationship with God in the future, then you need to come to Jesus who died for your sin. You have to make a choice to repent of your sin. And if they turn and believe in him to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. And for some today, maybe that's where it begins. It's coming to that point saying, God, I cannot wash away my sin. I cannot save myself. But I believe that Jesus Christ came to die for my sin and I'm going to ask him to be my savior. You see, the answer to every man's discontentment is God. And it's drawing near to him. Maybe you need to draw near. How's your devotional life? How's your Bible study? Is all you get of God Sunday morning? Then you're punching a spiritual time clock. And no wonder there's this emptiness in your heart. No wonder there's this dissatisfaction. No matter, no wonder is there this, this, this nagging hole that's in your soul driving you slowly, step by step, inching you away from God. And God says, stop, turn, and come back to me. Draw near to me. I remember hearing the story of this couple who had been serving God as missionaries overseas for about 30 years. After 30 years of missionaries, they, they flew back to the United States where they were from, and they flew into the city of Las Vegas. Now, I don't know if you know, Las Vegas in the United States is a city, they call it Sin City, Las Vegas, right? They say what happens in Las Vegas stays in Las Vegas. In other words, you can go to Las Vegas and you can sow all of your sinful seeds and all that stays in Las Vegas and nothing leaves Las Vegas. That's never true, but that's what they say, right? But it's a, it's a city of glitz and glamour. And so this couple had never been there. And so they flew in late at night, checked into their hotel and they, they decided, let's go walk around the, the strip in Las Vegas and let's see what it's all about. So about 12 o'clock at night, this older couple went down and they began to walk the streets of Las Vegas and they saw sights and sounds they had never seen before in their life. I mean, they, they saw glamorous hotels. They saw hotel after hotel with casino after casino. They heard the slot machine. They heard laughter. They saw people drinking in the bars, apparently having fun. One night, they, uh, that night, they went to a car show and they saw the most expensive cars in the world. They saw billboards advertising some of the best restaurants and the greatest food on the planet. And so after a couple hours of walking the streets of Las Vegas, this older couple walked back up into their hotel. They went up into the floor. They were away up on a high floor. And there, their hotel room overlooked the city. They drew open the curtains. They looked down at all of the lights and all the glitz and the glamour of Las Vegas. And then they both fell upon their knees. The husband turned his eyes to heaven, and he prayed this very simple prayer. He said this. He said, God, I thank you tonight that I haven't seen anything that I want more than I want you. Friends, that's the secret of our discontentment. The secret to our contentment is drawing near to God. See, it's only when we are drawing near to God will we find true contentment and satisfaction in life. And friends, if you are not finding your contentment in God, then you just might be on a path to making a similar mistake as David did. May not be David's sin, but it's the same mistake. And what was his mistake? Never quite satisfied. Why? Because he's looking for satisfaction in all of the wrong places. Let's imagine for a moment, as I bring this to a conclusion, let's imagine for a moment, what would happen if you started afresh and new drawing near to God? 
Friends, there would be contentment. There would be satisfaction in your soul. No more uncontrolled shopping sprees. Wouldn't have to worry about living in debt. No more secret relationships. Maybe a fresh love for your spouse, a new joy, and a new peace in your heart. Imagine what that could happen in your church. Imagine if God's people just said, listen, I'm going to make a fresh commitment, and I'm going to start drawing near to God today. You know what would happen in your church? It would transform this body. Likely people would walk in here with a smile upon their face and a skip in their step. It would change our focus from being focused on self to be focused on, on others. And I think our contentment would draw the world who are seeking contentment. Because, friends, we have contentment found in Christ. Remember John chapter 4, Jesus came to that woman at the well. She was not satisfied. The Bible says she had five husbands, and the one that she was living with was not her husband. Remember what Jesus said? He lifted up some water. He says, I have some water, and if you drink of this water, you will never thirst Again, I have something to satisfy your soul. Friends, Jesus satisfies the longing of our soul. So let's draw near. You can live a satisfied and a contented life in Christ. Let's bow for prayer. Shall we? Lord, we just want to say thank you. Lord, thank you for this very familiar story here in 2 Samuel, the story of David and his sin with Bathsheba. But Lord, we take note today that it was caused because of his desire for more. And this same desire that gripped his heart can easily grip our hearts. But Lord, I want to pray today for your people. Lord, I don't know where they are in their walking relationship with you, but maybe there are some who are true believers today. They know you. They have trusted you. And yet this desire for more has gripped their heart and as a result, although, God, you've warned them with the word that's upon their heart, maybe through the testimony of a friend, they're spitting to the wind, and they stand in danger of making David's mistake. Lord, I pray for those today, that today that they would stop upon this path, and then they would turn to you, and they would begin to seek you and to pursue you, that they would begin to draw near, that they might find their satisfaction in you and in you alone. Lord, I pray for others today who, maybe there's some that are here this morning that have never placed their faith and trust in you. And as a result, there's a God-shaped hole in their heart. And they're trying to stuff this God-shaped hole with the things of this life and coming up empty. Lord, I pray today that you would show them that their need is an intimate, personal walk and relationship with you, that they need you as their Savior. They need you as their Lord. And so, dear God, I pray today that if there are some that are here this morning that are not saved, they're not sure that they're not saved, saved, I pray that today would be the day of salvation for them. Would you take your word this morning, speak to our hearts, do your work, we ask, in Jesus' name, amen.